If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn or tap or however you get there, whatever device you have, uh, to the book of First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 12. <clears throat> it's an amazing thing to sing, for sinners to sing that God will be forever ours. Isn't that amazing? That sinners who have evoked the wrath of God can sing, He's going to be ours forever. <laughs> Thanks for leading this, Nathan. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Well, in the last few days before uh, leaving office, the 44th president of the United States, Barack Obama, delivered what is known as his farewell address. And in doing so, Obama continued a long-standing tradition uh, among American presidents, which has gone all the way back to George Washington. And it's interesting because George Washington had the most significant of these addresses because in 1796, he was the first one to announce that his intention was to peacefully step down from the presidency. And that, that fact is one of the greatest sights, I think, in American democracy, that we have the peaceful transition of power even among bitter political rivals. Most of these speeches, I went back and read some of these this week, they, they have a similar quality to them. They, presidents uh, on their way out, they, they thank the American public, they thank uh, those who helped them get there and those who are close to them and their administration, but they also tend to recount the achievements of their presidency. They, they, they help remind folks of the legacy that they want to be remembered for. Obama highlighted uh, catching Osama bin Laden opening up relations with Cuba, and of course, uh, health insurance for 20 million Americans. I looked back and George Bush, of course, mentioned 9-11 and uh, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and numerous, numerous other measures to, to fight terrorism. And the, these farewell addresses, they, they sound very different than in inauguration speeches. Obama's speech sounded very different than President uh, Donald Trump's inauguration speech. And you see, with no more elections to win, with no more legislation to pass, they, they feel pretty different. They're, they're seasoned with a different kind of, I'd say even humility, an experience and, 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 and some gratitude. They're still very political. It's the final defense of their administration. Well, maybe not the final, but one of the final, you know, defenses of their administration and their policy, a defense of their legacy and even of their, their own character. And you see, the text that we have before us tonight in 1 Samuel 12 is... Is kind of like these speeches in that it is also a farewell address. It's a, it's a transition of, of power where, where Samuel publicly declares that he intends to step down from his role as the judge, which is the chief political office in, in Israel, and to hand the reins, so to speak, over to King Saul. And I'm sure you remember, even if you haven't been here with us, that you remember that the people of God in, in 1 Samuel have sinned very seriously against the Lord by rejecting him and, and asking for a human king. And what's amazing about this to me is that even though this request grieves God, and even though it grieves Samuel, and even though it is clearly sinful, God does something surprising. He decides to give the people of Israel what they want, a king. 
Now, that in itself isn't as surprising, but what is most surprising to me, because he gives them a king and he gives them all the consequences that come, that come with the king. He reminds them of that. But what's so amazing to me is that God doesn't abandon them. He doesn't abandon them. They blatantly and openly and politically and officially abandon God as their hope, and he doesn't abandon them. He just says, oh, new avenue to show my grace and my power. You see, it's because of God's covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. I want those words to ring in our hearts tonight. It's because of God's covenant faithfulness that Israel's sin does not ruin God's plan for salvation. Sin does not ruin God's plan for salvation. What a joy. What a comfort. In fact, it just becomes an obstacle that ends up showing, ends up magnifying how merciful and how great God really is. God could have destroyed Israel for their sinful decision, but instead he chooses to work through their sinful decisions. And tonight in this text, all of the dynamics of this are on full display in Samuel's farewell address. But he's doing more than just a, a peaceful transition of power. Samuel is reminding the people of the covenant that God has made with them. And in doing so, he actually explains, and this is what is really, really relevant to us, Samuel actually explains how sinners or covenant breakers who live in covenant with God are able to survive and thrive. Samuel explains how sinners who live in covenant with God are able to survive and thrive and not be struck dead because of the righteous wrath of God. So tonight we're going to see the covenant faithfulness of God in action. We're going to see the covenant faithfulness of God in action. And I think this is totally relevant to us who are far removed from ancient Israel here in the church age because we too, that is believers, if you're, if you're not a believer, this doesn't apply to you, if, that we too have entered into a covenant with God. Just like Old Testament Israel who were in covenant with God and we too violate our covenant with God when we sin. You see, the primary difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is not that we don't sin. We are so much like Israel. The difference is we get clean by a different kind of blood. In the Old Covenant, they were cleansed with the blood of rams and bulls and goats. But we have something far more precious, the blood of Christ. You see, the God of the Old Covenant is the same God as the New Covenant, and my prayer is that tonight we would grow better acquainted with his ways. And since that's not something I can do by myself, let's go again and let's ask the Lord for help. Okay? Father, as we come before you tonight, our hopes are so much bigger than what any human can accomplish. Father, we want to grow. We want to change. We want... We want the things that we have sung about to be true in our hearts, that you are our portion and that's enough for us. Father, we want to be free from the sin that entangles us so easily. We want to be full of hope and joy no matter what our circumstances are. And Lord, that is so hard. So Father, I pray that tonight that you would feed your people. We don't deserve it, but you're kind to us. 
So Lord, tonight, let my words fall to the ground, blow away, let them be forgotten. No one needs to hear from a man. We need to hear from you. So Father, let your word come, let it abide among us, and let it bear fruit by your Holy Spirit, and let that be all to your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. The first thing I would like to draw your attention to in this text tonight, and it's a long, it's a long text. It's 25, 25 verses, and I'm, as we go, th- I'm gonna, we're gonna walk through most of it, and I'm gonna try to read or, or summarize all of it. Um, but the first thing I'd like to draw your attention to is the outcome of a faithful life. It's point number one: the outcome of a faithful life. Look down here at, at verse one. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord, and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. In the, in the next several verses, in verses 4 through 6, the people basically agree. They say, you have not defrauded us. So, so okay, so let's think about what, what's, what's going on here. What, how can we benefit from this, right? Why, why, does this, why does this help us? Why is Samuel seeking vindication for his life and the life of faithfulness? Well, we'll see in a moment that, that Samuel is connecting his faithfulness, the faithfulness in his ministry, to God's faithfulness. The faithfulness that they have rejected. And that's important. But you see, I don't think that his primary concern here is for his own, his own legacy, right? This is, this is not about securing his place in the history book. He's concerned about the name of God and the righteous vindication of God's name. There's so many important things that we could learn here. You would laugh if you saw my first outline. Um, But because the faithfulness of God is yet another call for you and I to live upright and faithful lives. Because here's the thing. Your life reflects your God. The way that you live reflects what you believe about God. You see, we can't forget the backdrop of, of Samuel here, right? He, he, we have seen so many wicked and corrupt leaders. We have seen leaders that are so bad that God struck them dead, right? And, 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 and that breeds an attitude of distrust among the people. Yet unlike Eli and unlike his sons and unlike Samuel's wicked sons and even unlike the people of God, Samuel has been the one person who has been meticulously honest. He's been even quick to obey, even when God tells him to to give Israel a king, which effectively removes him out out of leadership. And my favorite part of all this, one of my favorite things, is that Samuel welcomes the scrutiny. Not only is he able to take it, but he brings it on. He invites it. Samuel's life is a reminder to us of what a life of righteous obedience looks like. It reminds us what it looks like. It is a light that shines in a world of darkness. Is that how others would describe your life? You see, when you choose to live life faithfully... 
When you choose to obey God, even when it hurts, or even when it costs something, you know what happens? Your life shines. It displays to the world that my God is more important than my circumstances. He is wiser than me, and I'm going to trust him. And even though this may not seem to make me happy now, I'm going to wait and trust in him for happiness in the future because he is more valuable to me than anything that disobedience could earn me. A life of radical obedience shines, especially when it's hard to obey. I mean, think about it. What's the big deal if you only obey when it's easy? I mean, what's, what's the big deal, right? When, you, when, when, when it's convenient or, or when it's easy. Think about, think about Abraham when he was called to sacrifice Isaac. God wants to see if we will obey him when obedience is really scary and really hard. I mean, think, it's easy to love your husband when he's kind and gentle, right? That's easy. Anybody can do that. But what about when he's cruel and belligerent? It's easy not to look at porn when your wife and kids are in the room with you, right? It's easy. But what about when you're alone? You see, all obedience honors God, but God is most honored when we obey him when it's hard. And so much of Samuel's life is hard obedience. And Samuel's life reminds us of the value of a clean name. I love how in in these first five verses, Samuel just completely welcomes. He opens up his life for, uh, for scrutiny. He has nothing to hide. And since he has nothing to hide, he, he is able to withstand it. Do you welcome scrutiny in your life? Is that something you do? Do, do you welcome that? Do, do you welcome examination? Do you appreciate it when your spouse points out an area that you're struggling? <laughs> right? Or, or what about a close friend who, who kindly helps you see the blind spots of sin in your life? You see, the one who's righteous, the one who is wise and loves wisdom, will see correction as a gift. Let's see correction as a gift. There, there's so many lessons for, for leadership here. And, and I think one of them uh, that I'd like to point out is that, is that this, this helps us think about what we should expect of our pastors. Men whose, we should expect our pastors to be men whose lives are clean, even under rigorous scrutiny. We should expect that. That's not a luxury, that's a requirement. Not, not, not sinless, right? That guy doesn't exist, but clean. And we should be praying that God would give us pastors and, and leaders who, who live clean lives. And if you have leaders like that, they're a gift. And we should be praying for them. We should be seeking them out. If there is a time and a place where, where, where you as a church need to get new leaders, seek holiness. Not resumes, not degrees, not charisma. Look for holiness. We should imitate them as much as they're worthy of imitation. God's intention and his blessing is to give us godly examples so that we can watch them and then imitate them. Perhaps you'll remember Hebrews chapter 13 where where we read, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and then consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. 
Their lives should function as a call to others, not just standing up here and preaching, but their lives should be a call to others to live holy. Not just in what they say, but in what they do, in how they act, in how they speak. You see, one of the other lessons, and one of the lessons of the Bible, and it is so helpful for us, is that extraordinary godliness leads to extraordinary usefulness. Doesn't it? We see that all over the Bible. And have you ever seen that in life where that wasn't true? Extraordinary godliness leads to extraordinary usefulness. And this isn't just for pastors. And this isn't just for leaders. This goes for all leaders, especially parents, right? Anyone who has influence on, on other people, any position of influence, no matter how small. You see, the reason for this is that God has designed it. He's designed the world. He's designed our spiritual hearts like this. That we are greatly encouraged to believe the gospel when we see it powerfully at work in other people. Isn't that neat? We are greatly encouraged to believe the gospel when we see the gospel powerfully at work in the lives of other people. That is so different than an explanation of what the Bible says. Right? When you see the power of God at work in someone's life, that compels you to be like them. There is no greater testimony about what you believe and who you believe than the way you actually live. This is why Christians should be a people of repentance. So we should be so quick to say, yes, I just acted in a way that is wrong and that is nothing like my God. That's nothing like that he's made the church to be. My life is inconsistent, so I repent. That's why Christians should be quick to repent. Because our lives tell people what we believe about God. Moms and dads, you can teach your kids until you are blue in the face. You can homeschool, discipline perfectly, catechize in Latin, do devotions three times a day, and none of that will be more influential than the way that you live your life. None of that will be more influential than the way that you live your life. Children learn about the God of their parents. Not by what they say, but by how they live. We, they will learn about the God that we actually worship by the manner and the outcome of our lives. This is how God has designed it. The faithful lives of leaders will encourage the faith of others. So be sure to select and keep faithful leaders and insist that they're obedient. But Samuel's just getting started. And not only are we encouraged to consider the value of a clean life, but we're called to number two, consider the historical faithfulness of God. Samuel was not the star of the show, right? Just like no pastor is the star of the show. It's all about God. And in the next 10 verses, Samuel sets out to remind the people of the historical faithfulness of the God they just rejected. Let's look down. Let's read starting in verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. I like this. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. Verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Caesarea, 
commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord, and they said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Okay, there's a, there's a, lot, there's a lot to talk about here, but one of the first things to notice is, is how Samuel pleads the cause of the Lord. I love this. Sit down, let me give you a talking, right? Samuel's pleading the cause of the Lord, the reminding them of the God they have rejected. They have rejected a God who has been utterly faithful to them in spite of their faithlessness. He delivered them up out of Egypt from the hands of their oppressors. <clears throat> Yet they forgot God, verse 9. That's really one of the key ideas of this passage. And so God gave them over into the hands of their enemies. But God delivered them again, and he raised up judges like Gideon, who in this text is translated Jerubbabel, Barak, and even Samuel, <clears throat> eventually Samuel himself. God delivered them from Hazar, from the Philistines, from the Moabites. But what happened? Did they learn their lesson? No. They did it again, right? They did it again. Samuel actually jumps forward in history, and he lands back in chapter 11, <coughs> which, is, which is recent history. In fact, it was that week. If you look at the end of 11, it goes right into chapter 12. So, so they're picking up where they left off in, in chapter 11, where once again, the sin of the people got them into trouble, right? That's what we saw with Nahash the Ammonite back in chapter 11. <coughs> Even though they had just rejected God as their king, God didn't destroy them, and he didn't let Nahash destroy them. In fact, God actually blessed Saul, his sort of rival, and then he used him to deliver the people from their afflictions. Church, there's so many lessons for us here. And one of the main ones is this. God always delivers his people. God always delivers his people. God had been perfectly faithful to his people in spite of their sin. Even from the beginning of time, he has a perfect, 100% immaculate, absolutely flawless track record. God had never failed. God has never failed. God will never fail. Now, we may not understand the timing. Usually we don't. And we actually may not even see the deliverance. I mean, think about it. Israel was enslaved in Egypt for how long? Who knows? 400 years. You know how long the United States has existed, right? I mean, they were enslaved for 400 years and they gave up on God. 400 years is a lot of grandbabies. And they gave up on God. But God hadn't failed them. God just has his own timetable. God has his own timetable. Church, listen. God has never failed his people. And he's not going to start with you. And he's not going to start with Mark and Jody. And he's not going to start with Emma. God never fails. 
I don't care what our president says. I don't care what any past president says. God alone does not fail. God alone keeps his promises. And guess what? God owes us us no explanations. He actually helps us by giving us his track record. He, he shows us what he has done in the past. He has given us thousands of years of his resume, right? Don't judge him by your suffering. Don't judge him by your situation. Look at his track record. Let that shape your view of God. God will not fail his people. He promised But as you know, it's hard to remember this. It's very hard to remember this. Israel had seen the incredible acts of God, and yet they forgot him. Now, so often, you know, we're pretty hard on Israel, aren't we? Right? Man, you read the story of Israel, you're like, what were they thinking? Like, my goodness. You know? (laughs) They're they're wondering. I mean, we're so hard on Israel because of their stupidity and their forgetfulness and their stupidity. Right? But here's the thing. We're we're, we're just as stupid. Right? We're just just as stupid. I mean, Israel saw God part the Red Sea. Right? If you try to imagine that. Israel saw God part the Red Sea. And you and I have seen by faith God raise Jesus from the dead. Which is a bigger deal, right? Which is a bigger display of power? We've seen God raise Jesus from death and then raise him. He sent him to die. And we still doubt that he cares for us in our circumstances, right? Just like the Red Sea. You see, our temptation is exactly like the temptation that Israel faced. And this text displays it vividly. But the third thing I want to draw your attention to is the cycle of sin, right? You've seen it drawn on the dry erase board in Sunday school since you were a kid, right? We could, all, we could probably all draw it, draw it up here for us. And I'm, I'm glad you've heard about it. But let's, let's think about it. Here, here's how the cycle of sin works. <clears throat> Israel would face herself in some sort of difficult circumstance. Maybe sometimes they were facing an enemy or a big giant like body of water with an army behind them or they had no water in the wilderness or Moses was up on a mountain or something, right? There's some sort of difficulty or sometimes it was just too much prosperity. That can be a trial, a trial too. But what would happen is they would forget God. That's the key word. Forget God. And they would especially forget God's history. They didn't forget that he existed. They forgot what he was like. Verse 9 says they forgot the Lord their God. And instead of turning to God for help in their circumstance, instead of turning to him for deliverance, they would turn to some variety of idols for deliverance. Every time. A golden calf. A Baal or Baal, I feel silly when I say it like that. An Astaroth or, or even picking their own leader Saul. And so God would judge Israel and send them into captivity or some sort of trouble. And then what would happen? Israel would cry out in despair, right? Just like the prodigal son. And then they would cry out to God for deliverance and confess and repent of their sin. And what would happen? God would deliver them. Every time. It's amazing. He didn't stop, right? Over and over again. Every time they would repent and call out, God would deliver them and then they would do it again. And we we tend to do the exact same thing, don't we? If we're honest, if we look at our lives. Israel is not an especially wicked or stupid group of people. 
The more I think about Israel, the more I, the more I see they simply behave like all humans with sinful natures behave. See, the problem is that sin makes us stupid all the time. Sin makes you stupid. We do the exact same thing. We follow the same patterns in our lives. And this is how the sin cycle works in our lives. It usually begins when we're in the middle of some sort of difficult circumstance. Right? Sometimes prosperity, but it's usually a difficult circumstance. Maybe it's a difficult marriage or a sickness. Maybe someone sins against you. Maybe it's a difficult child, a season of darkness. And just like Israel, we think, oh, Pharaoh is too strong. All of these walls of Jericho are too high. Oh, there's no water. Oh, this enemy is too tall. And we start to doubt that God will take care of us because we forget the past faithfulness of God. And what do we do? You got to turn somewhere, so we turn to an idol. Some sort of mini fake God. Maybe we seek comfort from food or TV instead of God. Maybe we look to an insurance policy or a government to provide security for the future. Maybe it's online shopping, all right? Something to ease the sadness. But whatever your variety of idol is, all idols are the same. Let's jump ahead. Look down at Samuel's assessment of idols in verse 21. I love this, right? Samuel says, do not turn aside after empty things. <laughs> That's a great description of your idol. Empty things. Uh, they cannot profit or deliver. Why? Because they're empty. So one of the scholars I like to read, he calls these idols zero gods. Right? I, I've never heard that before. Zero gods. Because they can deliver zero. Right? They can, they can give you zero. They are zeros. All idols do is make promises they can't fulfill. And when you run to them and you find yourself unfulfilled, you're like, well, I've got to go back and get some more because you're still hungry, right? You, go, you keep going back. And he, you see, here's the thing. It does not take, and you, for our circumstances, it does not take us being surrounded by the army of Nahash in order for us to quietly fall into unbelief. All it takes is a little difficulty, a little crisis, a bad day, and we quietly think, in this thing, he can't provide. God has no provision for me in this circumstance. It's just too hard, right? We don't, we don't say that, but that's how we live. God's, he just, he's, there's just no provision this time. The diagnosis is too bad. My marriage is too hopeless. I'm just too tired or not strong enough. Israel's belief was big and obvious and stupid, but our unbelief is quiet and low-key and often private. But the sin is the same, and it's just as destructive. It's forgetting the historical faithfulness of God, which is an insult to his glory. It's an insult to his holiness and to his love and to his power. So let me ask you tonight just to think what are the circumstances in your life that are tempting you to forget the historical faithfulness of God? What are they? Now stack God up in the other corner against them. Get your mind right, right? Renew your mind by recalling the, the mighty deeds of the Lord. Cry out to him and wait for deliverance. Even if it's months, even if it's years, 
You're not the first desperate person to ask the Lord for help. Remember that. But we must go on. Fourth, let's remember the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness and the severity of God. This deserves a whole sermon. And I don't have time to do it, but let's give it a few moments. The kindness and severity of God. Look down at verse 13. Now behold, the king, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. The hand of the Lord will be against you. This is absolutely amazing to me. I've said it again. I'll say, even though Israel rejects their covenant God and, and chooses a king instead, this does not derail God's covenant faithfulness. This doesn't derail it. Nothing can derail his covenant love and faithfulness to us. So now the people, are they renew the covenant. That's, what, that's where we ended in chapter 11. They renew the covenant here at Gilgal. Israel will now live under a king, but the way that they relate to God remains fundamentally unchanged. And it remains the same for us under the new covenant. You see, you could think about this as the economy of God. That's how I often think about it. It's so simple, but it's often ignored, right? Just think about it like this. This is what I mean by the economy of God. If we obey the Lord, things will go well for us. If we disobey, they go bad for us. Got to get that into our heads, right? It's so simple. If we obey the Lord, if we serve and worship and fear him, it will go well for us. But if we disobey, the hand of the Lord will be against us. I cannot say this enough to my heart. I cannot hear this enough. I can't say it enough to you. I can't say it enough to my children. Obedience always brings blessing. Disobedience always brings pain. You can take it to the bank. I don't, I don't have the timing sorted out, but obedience always brings blessing and disobedience always brings pain. The more you get this into your head, the more you will grow in victory over sin. God's covenant love does not change this. God does not remove all the pain of sin. We need to behold both the severity and the kindness of God, as we're reminded in Romans chapter 11. Not just one, right? We're, we love the kindness of God. We talk about it all the time. The severity of God, not so much, right? That's not usually a part of our evangelistic explanations. The severity and the kindness of God. If we focus on one and forget the other, we'll be unbalanced, right? All of us are probably leaning one way or the other. <clears throat> let's, let's think about the severity of God first in verse 16. <clears throat> Somebody want to read that for me? Somebody read verse 16. Sit down and watch what God's going to do. I love it, right? Sit down and, and watch. Samuel decides that Israel needs a little object lesson, right? Some show and tell, a little visual aid. So down in verses 17 and 18, <clears throat> Samuel calls on God to bring a massive thunderstorm, right? He calls for a massive thunderstorm. Now, 
we've all been in thunderstorms that are like, whoa, right? God's big, right? We've, we've all been in those. But this is not just any thunderstorm. This is an out-of-season thunderstorm. This would be like celebrating 4th of July in Miami and getting six inches of snow, right? This is that kind of thunderstorm. And, and it worked. The people saw that God, Samuel called this down, this out-of-season thunderstorm, <clears throat> and it worked because after the Lord sent rain and thunder, we see in verse 18, the people greatly feel, feared both the Lord and Samuel. I mean, what was God doing? What, what, was, he, what was he trying to show them? I, there's something about a good thunderstorm that, that puts us in our place. I remember as a kid, I'd, my dad would want to take me out onto the porch. My mom hated it. But my dad would take me out on the screen porch. And we lived up in the woods. And had these big thunderstorms. And you feel like trees are going to you know, fall everywhere. And it just reminded me. My dad would say, son, God is an awesome God. He'd say that to me all the time. They put us in our place. But, and, and I think God was showing off his incredible power. But it's not just any power. God was showing off his incredible power for destruction. The power that he holds in his hand at any time. And the reason that we're not destroyed is because God is kind. Right? He's showing them the incredible destruction that he has. He can at any moment easily, easily... Bring us and our property and our dreams and our gifts. He can bring us to an end, right? Whenever we sin, we are forgetting how much God hates our sin and what a terrible thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Every time we sin, we are presuming upon his kindness. I remember an incident several months back when I noticed a strange smell coming out of our refrigerator. You might have had these moments, right? Strange smell. I investigated, couldn't, couldn't find the culprit. Haley looked, she couldn't find it either, right? We were kind of looking around. So I did what any good husband would do. Closed the fridge, went about my day, right? <laughs> anybody, anybody killed the But the problem is this, the smell didn't go away, and it didn't lessen. It increased. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, eventually, it was more than we could bear. So, uh, so I started taking everything out of the refrigerator and I figured out what was going on. A, a big old cucumber had fallen down back behind the veggie drawer. You know, that thing that keeps vegetables. It kind of fallen back there and it was no longer green. It was a variety of colors, none of which were green, right? And you know, you know, I don't think I would have ever known about the moldy cucumber if I hadn't smelled it, right? I would never have seen it and know to get rid of it. That's how it is with our sin. Until your sin stinks to you, you won't care to remove it. And our noses are incredibly good at masking the smell, right? They're incredibly good at getting used to our own stench. So God uses his incredible power to show us the smelly danger of our idolatry in the hopes that we will be repulsed by it and alarmed. You see, we will not really care about our sin until we see how much our sin stinks to God. That is a key to putting away that sin that is lingering in your life. It's not until we see how disgusting our pride is, how nasty our gossiping is, or how atrocious our selfishness really is that we'll put it away. 
right? It's just too comfortable. It's just too, <clears throat> it's too easy. And that's what happened to Israel. Once they saw the power of God, once they had the eyes, or maybe the noses, to smell the, stick, the stinkiness of their sin, that's when they repented. When they saw what it really does. <laughs> the severity of God. <clears throat> Let's think about the kindness of God. Let's look down at verse 19. <clears throat> Father, sustain my voice. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Oh, what precious treasures are contained for us in this text. In verse 19, the people of God repented because they saw that God was not only severe, he is severe, but he's also kind. You see that in the text? I, ho I hope you can see it. We see how the severity of God is a, is a deterrent for sin, but so is the kindness of God. It's also a deterrent of sin. Verse 20 is amazing. The people are undone by their sin. Pray to God that we will not die. What does Samuel say? Don't be afraid. They're like, wait a minute. Did you just see the storm, right? Have you not just been saying about how bad this is? He says, don't be afraid. You've done all this evil. Just don't turn aside from following the Lord and serve him with all your heart. Friends, this is an early picture of the gospel, isn't it? God is not only severe, but he's also kind. That's what we see in the cross of Jesus Christ. That even though we have done great evil, the message of the gospel is that though you have done great evil, don't be afraid. Be afraid, but don't be afraid. Right? Fear hell, but don't fear God. Right? Don't be afraid. Repent and accept the sacrifice of Christ the Lord. It's an early picture of the gospel. We have no reason to fear God. That's why we run to him and expose our sins because we know that we will find him a kind, loving father. Look down at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. I think that one deserves a sermon too. Hmm. The Lord does not abandon us, not because we're great, but because he's great for his great name's sake. If you repent, if you put away your sin, you will find no reason to be afraid of God. But if you continue, be afraid. Be afraid. God will not forsake his people. And this is the message of the gospel. That for those who repent of their sins, who smell and hate the stench of their sin, they will turn away from it, right? Only dogs go back to their own vomit. Let's not do it, right? They will find, when they turn away, a God who's eager to forgive. You see... The sin cycle. One of the things that struck me so much about the cycle of sin, I, I never noticed this before. I thought about it a lot as I've grown up. But one of the things that struck me for the first time is that God actually permits it. 
You ever thought of that? God actually permits the sin cycle. He, he doesn't condone our sin, right? He doesn't want us to keep going in circles, but he actually permits it to be a cycle. It could be circumstance, forget God, sin, dead. But instead we get grace, right? We get, we get grace. He is willing to forgive no matter how many times we go round and round, as long as we turn from our sin and repentance. God knows we get tripped up. He knows we get entangled with sin. He knows we get lured away by other empty zero gods. But he receives us back. Final point I'd like to draw your attention to is the man of God. In verses 19, in verse 19, the people asked Samuel to intercede for them to God so they would not die. And then in verses 23 and 24, Samuel responds by giving them spiritual help, right? The help that they asked for and by praying for them and instructing in the truth. But Israel's cry reminds us, their cry for mediator reminds us that sinners have a really significant problem. We cannot approach the God of wrath on our own because we are sin, sinners. And sin is the object of God's wrath. And sinners are the object of God's wrath. So we need a mediator. We need someone to speak to God on our behalf. Not a man, right? All, all men have sin problems too. And even though Samuel is willing to pray for the people and to remind them of the merciful character of God, we're reminded that no matter how faithful Samuel was, no matter how much integrity he had, he was still just a man. And now he's dead, right? A sinner. This man of God was not the man of God. And so now we turn and I invite you to see the man, Jesus Christ. The better judge, the better prophet, the better savior, the better deliverer. Only Christ, the sinless man, can approach the throne of God for sinners. And it's only through him that you can be saved. It's only through him that you can find acceptance and not fear God. And so let's end just as Samuel chapter 12 ends. Not forgetting the severity or the kindness of God. Look down in verse 24 and we'll close. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you'll be swept away, both you and your king. Let's pray. Father, help us to see and hate our sin. Help us to see and love the cross. Help us to treasure Christ. Do this in our lives, we pray. Amen. Thank you for, be, be, thank you for being here, church. You're dismissed.